Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends, number two, Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at A.L. Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at aol at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me aol. All right, let's get on with it. Hey, everybody, AL here. One last thing before we get into the episode. I want to apologize to you about some of the production quality in the back half of this episode. We were having tons of technical difficulties, and we were not doing this in person. We do this remotely. And there are some errors that we just cannot fix. Like, we can't RX them out, and the option becomes... Either release the episode or not. I mean, this is the nature of the beast. Sometimes there will be technical problems, but I personally feel that it's not so bad that it's worth scrapping the episode. I had a great time, and I think you guys would love to hear it. So my apologies for that. Please enjoy the episode. My guest today is Charlie Masabo, who is a French music producer, composer, and songwriter based out of Miami, who's previously an artistic director in Europe for companies such as Mad Waves in the UK and New Wave Labs, and he's worked on several projects for Google, Sony PlayStation, Ubisoft, and many, many more. He then moved to LA, started a studio, and started doing work for labels such as Epitaph, Fearless, Sony, Beeler Brothers, Season of Mist, among many, many others, and including artists such as Falling in Reverse, The Word Alive, Luke Holland, Davies Suicide, and a bunch more. He has credits across multiple music genres, including rock, metal, pop, hip-hop, EDM, and uh, his studio has been featured in a Google Pixel 3 Grammy commercial. This dude has done a lot of stuff. So that said, I introduce you Charlie Masabo. Charlie Masabo, welcome to the URM podcast. Hey, what's up? How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. So I saw that you're in Miami, right? Yes. Are you part of the wave of people that's leaving LA? No, no. So I wanted to be in Miami way prior to the pandemic. Um, I, you know, I lived in LA for 10 years and, you know, I'm French. Miami is way closer to Europe for my family, all this kind of stuff. And I wanted like to get out of like the scene I was in in LA. So I moved here end of 2019 and I was, you know, by coastal till the pandemic. And since the pan- pandemic, I'm here with my family. 
do you find that there's just as much opportunity there compared to LA for you? Or does it even matter where you are? Yeah, to be honest with you, I was pretty worried. Uh, <laughs> when I first moved here, I was like, damn, like it, this is going to be tough. But actually, it's kind of weird to say that. But, you know, thanks to the pandemic, everyone from New York, LA has been moving here or in Austin. So it's been really interesting at the studio, like really eclectic, versatile, like, you know, uh, multicultural sessions. Um, and, you know, Miami is pretty open. So we can keep working here, kind of you know, to a certain extent, but we can, we work way more than like all my homies in LA. I didn't realize that people were migrating to Miami. I thought that they were going to Nashville and Austin, but I never heard about Miami. Uh, it's crazy, man. Like the amount of ANRs that are sitting in the couch here since, I would say since like September, October, moving from LA, moving from New York, especially from New York, actually, you know, like people from New York, it's, it's like for them, they're like, wait, I can be in Miami and spend like, you know, uh, you know, a quarter of what I'm spending in New York and I can be by the beach. You know, if, you, if you're going to sit in front of Zoom all day, uh, maybe it's better to be close to the beach, you know what I mean? Instead of spending like 15K on your, on your rent to be in Manhattan and not being able to go out, you know? And li live in a closet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Pandemic aside, do you feel like in order to have a successful career, you need to be where the industry is? Or do you think that that almost doesn't matter? Oh, for me, it matters a lot. You're talking to a French guy here from, you know, a really small town mm -hmm. uh, in France and nothing was going on. And back in the days, no internet, you know, like for me, it was like a massive, like my first move was to UK and then Ireland and then California. And I had to be there. It's really important to be where the scene is to me. How did Ireland factor into that? I haven't really heard much about a mu <laughs> music scene in Ireland. Yeah, no, it's like what happened is that the, my first band in France, I was in a metal band called Sick. And that band got a few tours there. And I ended up like I was already recording and like engineering. And I ended up like, you know, producing a bunch of bands there, local bands. And at some point I was just in Limerick, like pretty much like all the time. Like I spent like close to like 11 months in Limerick just producing bands there in, you know. So, uh, yeah, it just happened like this. Like I was not, I didn't, Ireland called me. I didn't go there. Like when I went to California, I really wanted to be there. Ireland, I was just like, cool. Like, you know, I have some business there. Let's go. When you went to California, how much of a risk were you taking? Was it a scary thing or do you feel like you were already established enough to where you knew that you'd be able to make it work? Well, I had a bunch of connects already, you know, like before, like getting into the rock stuff. Uh, I was working for a company in, in UK that was doing music content for Google. So I was going to San Francisco uh, or Palo Alto often. And so I already had like some kind of network uh, to get some gigs there. And uh, that producer, Mud Rock, you know, like that guy, like really liked my songwriting and all this kind of stuff. So like it was also really welcoming to have me in his studio. So yeah, it was risky because I already had my studio in, in the south of France. Um, you know, I was kind of like, not established, but like I was comfortable and um, I had to leave everything to make that happen. So yeah, a little bit, but it was more like good anxiety than anything else, you know? My theory on moving to a place like LA, and I'm not trying to stop anybody. I think if that's where people think they should go, then go. Yeah, I've always thought that it's better to go if you already have a network, because if you just show up with no network, nothing, it's, it's going to be very, very rough. I mean, 
already had a network and like, you know, I already had the experience, like a bunch of ANRs from Sony and friends connected me to ANRs there. Like like I, I was I was pretty comfy uh on on that that end. But like yeah, I saw so many people coming in and out, like thinking like, you know, they would just show up and like things would blow up and and uh, this is not how it works. Here it's, I am. It's the same. Here I am. Just, yeah. I'm ready. <laughs> and LA doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's like Paris. Paris is the same vibe, you know? You just don't show up and make it happen. It's like someone has to call you first. And um, also it was like a, a genre saying, like, you know, like in Europe, I was doing that. You know, I've been working with Falling in Reverse and like this type of band a lot, like early 2000, like 2013, 14, 15. And I moved to LA like in 2012. And back in these days in Europe, beside Bring Me The Horizon, like bands were not really inclined to like, add like EDM or trap or, you know, like a lot of synths. And this is where I come from. Like, you know, like my background is more synths than guitars. And, you know, when I moved to LA, I was like, damn, like they all actually looking for that uniqueness, you know? And um, that's why I wanted to be there because I felt like I could do these things when in Europe people are kind of like, what the heck, you know? Like, this is not metal, dude. So, you know what I mean? Actually, um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean because um, my band ten years before that was doing a lot of electronics in our music, yeah, and the metal scene was shitting on you. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, I mean, you know, like we still got the record deal and did all that, but like it really, the amount of hate that we got for using electronics was ridiculous. Ridiculous, especially considering that ten years later, that became a cutting edge thing to do in heavy music. Yeah, who, who made that happen? Who are the bands that actually made it okay? Do you think it's Bring Me The Horizon? I think Bring Me The Horizon is one of them. I think the bands that my partner Joey Sturgis worked on, like uh, like Attack Attack and stuff. Asking Alexandria. Yeah, those bands. But then also, I think that there's bands like Demu Borgir who have been using yeah, dude. outside elements like that forever. And uh, I think... There, by the end of the 2000s, there were so many different types of heavy bands using synth that it just it just became accepted. I don't think it was any one band. Yeah, I mean, dude, Jimmy Berger, you know, they they didn't have the actual like EDM feel, no. trap feel, but the orchestrations were crazy. Like I remember also Vader, you know, like to go even deeper in the in the heavy stuff, like you know, and and uh, I think it's like. As long as it was minor, it was fine. And when that <laughs> feel of like major showed up in the middle of nowhere, a little bit, you know, a little too happy or whatever, like all the metal heads were like, what the heck, dude? So, yeah. So when you started doing that kind of stuff with heavy bands, um, did you feel like you were doing something cutting edge with them? I mean, you know, cutting edge, like I don't have this pretension well something new how about that doing so something that hasn't really been done yeah yeah i think a little bit i mean especially from where i come from you know i always look at it like from where i come from i was i was like damn like this is this is something pretty new and here's the deal it's like before getting it into actual bands i worked with in la i was already doing this prior to that style to become i would say like popular so I always felt like I was part of this, you know, and I know I'm not a pioneer of this, you know, style, 
But yeah, it really felt fresh. It actually felt fresh. Like it opens, you know, like bending genres and adding different like colors to to a, a music that is like to me a little limited, like metal, because like yeah, you expect like big distortion and big kick in your face the whole time. Like it's it that was really interesting to me because I was like, damn, like we can go from this into a pop chorus. Like we can use all that to actually, you know, create like a new type of sound and. Um, Yeah, I I loved experimenting. Like I felt like I was like experimenting every day as much as I wanted and it was fun and it was accepted, you know. Like remember in France like people are really really close-minded on this kind of stuff. It's like you really have to like, you know, if you're rock, you're rock, if you're metal, you're metal, but you can't be like going from a rock verse into a heavy chorus, you know. Like so so for me it was amazing. I don't know if it's like this now, but my experience with the European market or seen is that it's very, very divided among genres. Very crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Like, they take that shit seriously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, dude. Like I remember when I had a band, like we were always talking about the guys in the back with the crossed arms. <laughs> you know, like 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 you go to play your rock show and like you actually have a pit and then you have like 200 dudes in the back that are just judging. Like they paid for their ticket. <laughs> But they're all like analyzing what's going on instead of like enjoying the music or actually trying to get the vibe, you know? Like, you know, being like kind of being like, is that okay? Can they go like this on that course? Like, can they really do this type of breakdown? Hmm. You know, and looking at each other like this. It's pretty, like looking back, it's pretty funny actually. Is this acceptable? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hilarious because... Rock, I mean, metal music doesn't, you know, it's not, you, you don't become a millionaire quick, you know, if you do. So it's like, it's pretty funny to see that, like, you know, for such an underground movement, people could be so close-minded sometimes. Yeah, I completely agree. It's uh, it's interesting, though, that for such an underground movement, it really is, I think, a lot bigger than people realize. And uh, its staying power is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. Yeah, for something that really has only a few times has it ever been embraced by the mainstream for like very, very short periods of time. I mean, in Europe, dude, like it, the mainstream, I feel like the last last mainstream beside Gojira, like Slipknot, and then like I'm kind of like talking mainstream, mainstream. I missed out on something, but like, yeah, it, it was... I'm still. I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what happened like after 2006 in Europe, you know, <laughs> type, <laughs> type stuff. What, what's your take right now on like metal music? Uh, my take on metal music right now is there's a good side and a bad side. The bad side is that the mega bands are getting old, and that's concerning, obviously, because I'm not sure who's coming up behind them. Like who's going to be the next Slipknot? You know, at some point, Metallica is going to retire. Bands like Metallica and Slipknot help the metal economy tremendously. They provide so many jobs and so many opportunities and just, you know, they help keep the engine moving for sure. No matter what people think about their music or anything like that, just pure economics, bands like Slipknot, Metallica, even bands like Avenged Sevenfold have a huge positive inf influence on the entire metal scene. And so what's concerning to me is who's next. Now, I do think that there's some possible contenders like Bring Me the Horizon, you know, could take the place of one of those bands. Architects is coming up pretty hard right now. Oh, yeah. And maybe they could do that too. But my concern is that 
you know, 10 years from now, are we going to have mega bands like that, that are engines to the metal economy? That's a question in my mind. However, on the other hand, I feel like artistically metal is in a very good place after being in kind of a dark spot for a while. I think that at least over here, the genre lines almost don't matter anymore. Yeah. And people are being more creative than ever. I think that the productions are starting to get more and more real sounding again, though still huge and polished, which is cool. There's more of an emphasis on playing. Like I think uh, there's, there's some really good stuff coming out and, uh, the youngest generation has a lot of talent in it too. So I actually have a lot of hope for it artistically. I'm concerned about it commercially. Yeah, I mean, what I see now, like on the production side is like, you know, especially because I'm in Miami, like these people know here, these artists, they know I come from like a heavy rock, rock background. But now all of them are like kind of like looking for getting that energy in their tracks. And I've been doing collabs with Easy Beats, with Walshi from Major Lazer is here, like like doing like absolutely different stuff. There is no guitars, you know what I mean? There is no distortion, but they actually are looking for that energy. So I'm like, oh, okay, fast forward, they're going to be producers like me starting to put this type of, you know, metal sound into like Afrobeats or dancehall or, you know, like just a hip hop production. And then the movement is going to change. I feel like, you know, I had a discussion with Walshy Fire uh, a few days ago, and it was saying something really interesting. It was like, I think that genres are disappearing, and and it's just going to be a movement, you know, or it's going to be like a mood. It's like it's like slowly, and he sees it with Major Laser, you know, like it's so eclectic what they do. And it's like slowly, like people are not going to really care about genre, but they're going to be like, what kind of music do you do? Like, do you do angry music? Do you do sad music? Do you do happy music? And then every mood would, you know, incorporate whatever, you know, it could be like if you make happy music, you, you know, you mix pop punk and sugar pop, you know, and, and you know what I mean? So yes. I found that pretty interesting. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that. And also I think, um, and I know this for a fact, a lot of my friends who have like a foot in pop or hip hop are all telling me that everybody wants guitars now. Mm -hmm. And thank you, Machine Gun Kelly. Machine yeah. Gun Kelly is, I mean, he's not the first one to have successfully done the crossover, but I think he's the most famous one. And the most recent one too. But I think that really this started with trap music a few years ago, um, trap metal, where, you know, it's not really metal, but it's got something about it like fits with metal in a weird way. I think that trap getting so big and then eventually you get to Machine Gun Kelly. I think that you're going to start seeing more and more guitar and heaviness in popular music, which is great. So maybe the mega band will come out of that. Yeah, I, I just did like a couple of songs with um, these kids from Atlanta, Ayo and Teo like pure, you know, trap, hip-hop artists, both songs, guitars, all the way. I'm not saying like heavy guitars, but like they're looking for that sound and not just like for emo trap, you know, like not coming from Lil Pip type stuff, like to actually like, like more of a Red or Chili Pepper type guitar, like, you know, Blue Trigger Sex Magic type guitar. And, uh, and I, I think that's really interesting and that gets me really excited. That gets me really excited because I see the, the you know, the way they see the track and it's not just beats anymore. They actually see the, you know, what they can do with the guitar. And like, you know, working with trap artists, like this guy don't work like the same way we write songs with rock artists. 
they just go improvise. They are super spontaneous. And having them like actually interact with guitars is really fun. I have a lot of fun doing this. It makes me hopeful because, I mean, I'm sure you've heard people say that you know, guitar music is dead, guitar is dead, but that's bullshit. I have my two cents on this. What are your two cents? I don't think guitar music is dead. Like, <laughs> we all still listen to a good old Led Zeppelin. You know, any uh, culture, any ethnicity, like, they listen to, like, you know, classic rock and shit like this. I think what happened is a lot of singers kind of lost their message. Like, there is no more message in rock music. This is how I've been feeling for since 2017, meaning, you know, like, you know, I'm, I write a lot and being thrown into sessions where like, you know, like the way I see it is like, okay, cool. Like I can write a cool riff. I can get, create a good ambience for this part of the song or, you know, like I see it on the producer slash composer side. I never thought that I would actually come up with lyrics for someone else. And to me, it's like, when I started screaming in the mic years, you know, a long time ago, I was mad. I had some things to be mad about. I had, I was pointing things like politically or relationship or taboo, like all this kind of stuff. And now I feel like people in the rock world comes in the room, they come in the room like, like pop artists, meaning like, yeah, let's make a smash. Let's make a, a hit, you know, and, and, and the discussion is not like, how are we disruptive? You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, there's a lot of heavy bands right now. They are not being disruptive anymore. So, so it lost a little bit of authenticity and spontaneity. And people like they they get this. You know what I mean? Like, like Gojira, for example, they are really about their message. This is why it works. I love their music, but like I can talk about you know Whitechapel or stuff like that. You know, or Morbid Angel. Like there there is references in there, but like they have a good message. And I feel like this is what's missing right now with metal. It's like people that actually come up with, here is something that really matters to me and I want to talk about it. And it's not about the riffs or the guitars. Like this is more about like that message get kind of lost. Like to me, it's like it's against the culture, the metal culture to actually have an extra songwriter in the room. Yeah, have a producer or someone that can help you with the, the composition, but the message should be something that comes from the singer 1,000% and it should be convinced about it. You know what I mean? This is, this is how I feel. This, I think that's why like rock music kind of disappeared you know i mean disappeared is really french of mine <laughs> but you know what i mean disappeared is a relative term but i know exactly yeah, yeah. what you're saying you know i've said a lot that i feel like the danger got removed from metal and i think that we're kind of saying the same thing it's pc dude it's politically correct yes it's it's like it's like you know back in the 90s rage again the machine i don't think they <laughs> i don't think they were like calculating the repercussions of the shit they were saying and uh, and now I feel like I'm in the writing session and I'm like, damn, like, it's okay. Like, yeah, go for it. Take the risk. Like, you know, like, it's like this generation is, the metal is not really compatible <laughs> right now. As, you know, uh, it's not politically correct. It should not be. It, is, it should be disruptive. It should be like this. And uh, and people should love or hate. This should not be just, okay, it's going to work out or it's going to be a hit. Like, it has nothing to do with that, in my opinion. That's why I think the trap metal stuff has done so well, because it's dirty it's it's dirty and it speaks to where young people actually are. If I think back to the 90s, you know, you mentioned Morbid Angel. You know, going to a Morbid Angel show in the 90s was a kind of a dangerous situation. It really was. <laughs> I'm not saying that it's cool to like 
you know, get hurt at a show or something like that. But I'm saying that the vibe, that vibe was super dangerous. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, Rage Against the Machine, first show yeah. I went to, I was 14 and I was scared. <laughs> I was scared to be in that pit. Like people were there to like, you know, it was not just a little pogo, you know, like people were there to take it out, you know. So, yeah, it was a different vibe, you know. And you were tough. Like you were a tough guy if you were in the pit back in the days, you know. So the thing is, though, I don't think that that energy has disappeared. I just think it moved to another genre because uh, people yeah. still feel those same things. Travis Scott, dude. Have you been to a Travis Scott show? I have never been to a Travis Scott show. Yeah, that was the energy. Like, as he says, like they rage, you know, that reminded me of like this crazy energy of metal early 2000, like up to early 2000, you know. I really hope like this new generation, as you said, like is going to bring that back into rock music. I hope so too. When you're working with artists, because I mean, you're a songwriter, where do you draw the line then between that ideal that you're talking about of an artist 1000% bringing their message to the table versus you doing your job? I only work with like a hand of, of rock artists now. <laughs> I've been working way more with rappers and pop artists because I feel that I have, you know, there is more spontaneity. In, in these sessions. Rock artists, I mean, you know, to me, like a dude like Ronnie Radke, he has he has a saying, you know, I've, <laughs> I help him with melodies. I, you know, like we put tracks together, but this guy has his lyrics. You like it or not, this is him, you know, and I respect that. Oh yeah, he is who he is. Yeah, and I love that shit. Like to me, that's like, that's punk. That's, that's cool, you know, and then people react. Like, you know, that's what I love about this guy is like, you never know, you know, you're going to, he's going to drop a song and, uh, and you never know if it's going to be love or hate first. Like they're going to be both, but you never know. And, um, I love that. Like how I draw the line, I think like I've been more into like putting tracks together and sending like, you know, toppers ideas, like melodic ideas. And, you know, with COVID, like I haven't been in too many rock rooms, you know, like in Miami here, like there's no rock bands, like in Miami, Miami. So in Florida, there is tons of great bands, but but in Miami, not really. So I, I, did, I didn't really have to draw the line. <laughs> I kind of like put myself out of the equation type stuff, you know. You know, I think there's something to be said for that. Sounds to me like that's the exact same thing you did when you went to LA. You put yourself in the situation you wanted to be in, and then eventually you took yourself out of a situation you didn't want to be in and moved yourself into another situation you did want to be in. Yeah, exactly. I mean, things are so fresh here in Miami. You know, in the same week, I look at my room and like writing sessions or like, I'm like, wow, there is like, my assistant is from Colombia. And then there is like, these artists are from Atlanta. The feature is from Memphis. And, you know, like uh, the, their co-writer is from New York. And then there is that other French guy. Like, I love this. Like, this is like, I feel like this is really what I'm looking for. As really like, you know, sharing cultures, you know, there's something you can't copy, like, because I learned this. When I got to LA, I understood quickly I was that French dude, you know. <laughs> it was like, oh yeah, cool, you're French, so you're good, you're good with synths, you know, Daft Punk, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, like, dude, like, for the story, like, Ronnie, I produced his rap mixtape, he didn't know I was writing rock music. He didn't even know I had a metal band back in the days. I had his entire rap mixtape, like, a few years ago, and then one day he shows up in the studio, I have a guitar, he's like, you write, you write rock, dude? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, check out this. He's like, oh my God. <laughs> you know, but like Surprise. for him, it was just, yeah, it was just like, yeah, this guy is French. Like, you know, it does, does synths, you know, it's like. But you do do synths. I love synths. <laughs> of course. So I mean, they're kind of right. Yeah, of course. Culturally, yeah, that's why, I, yeah, that was my point. It's like, there are things you can't really 
you can be a sponge, but you always need, you know, people that actually been, you know, staying in that culture to bring something to the table that is really original. And right now, I feel like Miami has this. That's what I love about it. Like, I feel like LA got, and also LA is way more clique, you know, oriented. Like, it's like little groups yes. of people that only, you know, and Miami has that vibe. And this is not just for the, because of the pandemic, you know, it's kind of like New York. It's like, oh, you know that guy? I know that guy too, let's work. And, you, and it actually happens. And um, I love this about Miami. I'm not here just to promote Miami, but... <laughs> but <laughs> it sounds but, like you, you love know. it there. Yeah, yeah. I love the sun, man. <laughs> a lot of people who are doing hip-hop, pop, and these newer crossover genres, a lot of them are metal guys who decided to cross over um, at some point or, you know, who used to do metal. What do you think it is about metal producers who... that? they do so well in these other genres? I think it's because metal technically is organized mess, like organized no noise. <laughs> it's fucking you know? chaos. You know, it's like, so you go from like spending like 10 years of your life trying to find room for that snare to pop and that extra guitar, like that is already on the wall of guitars. You know what I mean? Like, and all of a sudden there is like the opportunity of being like, wait a minute, there's like four <laughs> instruments going, no distortion. Yeah, this is cool. And, you know, like I, I feel that's why, like, you know, like all my friends that did rock or, or metal, they're really good at mixing anything else. Metal is so hard, dude. Like, it's like the hardest music to write. You actually need to be really good. It's really hard to mix. It's so hard to sell. Like, <laughs> so it's like when, once you go through this and you make a little money doing that and you're like, damn, like, I, I, I could do it that way and you look at another jar, you're like, wait a minute, like, <laughs> let's go, you know? It's always a question of reason. Like, most metal is like mid-tempo and when you start getting, like right now I do a lot of drill, like, you know, like 135 to 150 type tempo. Like, mm -hmm. when I work with, like I've been working with that that guy, uh, Popeye Caution, like he's a MC from Jamaica. I mean, dude, this guy, the way he approaches the song is the same way I would approach the song with my guitar and be like, okay, cool, like, I'll write a breakdown, you know? Like, he's really trying to get, like, every word to hit as hard as a hit, like, in a guitar breakdown. And and we we really unify on this, you know? Like, because even if it's not my culture, and I've never been to Jamaica, like, it's just, like, the, uh, the rhythm approach, rhythmical, uh, it's it's really close, so it's I have the same fun, you know? But with a total different uh, sound design. So that's why I, 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 I you know, I, I started moving to other genres. Uh, but I also love, like, real instruments. Like, I've been working with uh, that kid, Luke Holland, a lot on all his Man, solo he's stuff. he's great. He's so great. To me, he's, like, he's like the perfect compromise, like, not compromise, but, like, the, um, how do you say, like, the, the, the bridge. He comes from metal and all the new drops he has. Like, it's, like, like right now we have a, a collab with a rapper from Memphis. We just did a collab with Rio Kragen. There's a singer for Flume that comes from like the electronic, you know, world. And but while trying to like bring like real drum sound to this type of genre, and um, you know, real drums like limits you to do certain things, and uh, and so you 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 find yourself doing something pretty unique because you can't you can't have real drum sound exactly. Uh, like can have the same energy as a trap song, you know. Like if you want to keep your kick to be real, like your 808, you're going to have to have some type of compromise on the attack of your 808. So that's what I've been up to like lately. Like Luke is, is been part of like the direction I'm going to. Like I know, I know we, we agree on a lot of things regarding like where metal was and like where we can go with 
our metal culture, you know. It's great to be doing that with such a phenomenal musician. Oh, it's crazy. <laughs> the old genius. Yeah, yeah, because it's not just some dude who decided to go to another genre because he can't play metal. Yeah, yeah. Lucas, to me, is like, like, I wish every metal musician was like him. You know, like, he can do the World Alive career and then go to, you know, do a bunch of songs with Jason Richardson, and in between he does a tour with Rufus Delsol, and he does a cover of Pop Smoke. Like, this is dope, you know? Like, this is like, to me, it's like, if every millennial could be as open-minded as him, I think we would have some crazy, I'm talking about millennial musicians, we would have some unbelievable music coming up. I completely agree, but I guess that's what makes someone like him special. Is uh, it's it's <laughs> yeah. rare. Yeah, it's rare. It's rare. Yeah, yeah. That 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 rapper was saying that exactly in that song we just did. Like he was like, "This vibe is rare. This shit is real. <laughs> this shit is live. I swear." <laughs> you know. Yeah, I think real great talents. You know, they're like one in a million or one in ten million. It's uh, I don't I don't think it's possible for everybody to be like that. Yeah, I'm. I feel I'm re- extremely grateful to do all this stuff with Luke. I mean, you know, I I do think this guy is have is gonna have like a Travis Barker type career. Is that close to uh, to get there and way younger than him? To me, it's like I see him like Travis Barker 2.0, totally different, different, different upcoming. But uh, I think he could have like you know share that love for drums. And to me, like drums, it's real instrument. It's amazing, you know. Like the way I see it, like like cool while well, trying to do great songs, but at the same time, I'm like all these kids that are gonna hear these rap songs, trap songs, they're gonna be like, oh yeah, it's cool to play a real instrument, and this is how we can get more people to come back and do some good shit <laughs> rock wise, you know. I have a theory that, or just a belief that real instruments are never going to go out, and I think that it's because. No matter what, even though there are tools to make life easier, you know, for non-drummers, you know, you can program drums. Uh, There's much more technology to assist. But on the other hand, the enjoyment that people get out of actually playing instruments... Oh, man. It hasn't gone anywhere. And, uh, And if you look at the evidence, like, for instance, Fender just had their biggest year Ever. I think they made, I think they posted, they made like $900 million last year or something. Not bad. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think it's all right. People are buying guitars. People are buying instruments. Like that's. I mean, dude, like all these kids coming here, renting the studio in Miami, they start like, their process is interesting, especially like all the, the, the up to, upcoming producers from Jamaica or like, you know, all the islands, like they go on Splice. <laughs> They find loops they like, they throw that in their session, they see if like their singer or rapper like feels it, and then there is a real guitar or real bass player in the room and they jam to it and that sample disappears. You know, it's like it's just like to me that's the pers- perfect way to use this kind of tool. It's like, you know, like something that you would not find in your brain that quick, that gives you that starting idea and then you jam to it and then it's gone. And, uh, but yeah, it's amazing to see like all these kids like playing, like, you know, like in Latin music, like Danny Ocean, like his guitarist producer is unbelievable player. I had the chance to have him here. Yeah. I think, you know, I agree with you. They're, real instruments are never going to go away. It's, it's just finding ways to incorporate them in upcoming movements and genres type stuff. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what I think is, uh, the problem. Well, I don't think it's a problem. I, 
am on your side of the fence about this. I, I don't think it's going anywhere. But I think the people who think that real instruments are on their way out, their problem is they're thinking of the world in a static sort of way. They think about it in the way that it was and they want it to be the way that it was. And that is just not going to happen. Yeah, I hear I hear so many producers saying yeah. like, oh dude, like, what would you track real drums? Like you can program that shit. And I'm there, I'm like, no. <laughs> Have you ever worked with a good drummer? <laughs> you know, it's like, you'll never replace this. You'll never replace that energy. Uh, you'll never replace the air it creates in your mix when you use like real drums. Um, it's It's... Yeah, I I mean, have, I'm, I'm biting my tongue because like, you know, 15 years ago, <laughs> I would be like, damn, like, this is awesome. I don't have to go rent a studio for my band to record drums, <laughs> you know, like on the coast side of things, you know, like especially in Europe, like you don't have a lot of project studios. So you end up in studios like where you have to spend 2K a day just for the rental. And this is your starting band. And, you know, you don't yeah. have that money. You're broke in college or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's cool to be able to program it and, and put your demos like this. But man yeah it's it's like real drums like it's life and uh, a lot of people around me they're always like damn dude like why do you spend so much time on this project with luke he's just a drummer and i'm like this is exactly the point he's a drummer this is such a different angle to actually read songs as an artist it's like it's defending the world from you know like just using programmed uh drums or like you know like like all kinds of tools that are gonna kind of like trying to replace uh you, the human brain and the human feel you know so uh you know of course i use a lot of synths but uh but i love real instruments and that's why i work with luke i think the best of both worlds is is like what you were just saying with splice using those tools to assist the creation of art whatever it takes not to replace not to replace the I guess the physical contributions of people, but to enhance them. And, and dude, like Splice, also on the other end, like on the producer side, you know, like like selling packs on Splice can get your music out. You know, like there was one sample I forgot the name, on, I don't remember what song, but like some girl that Brumi's Horizon used uh, on one of their tracks, like she ended up getting some cloud out of it and a recording deal out of this too. Um, it's like it's also a good way to show that you can also write some good music. I mean, you know, to me, it's it's all really positive. I do think that, you know, like, we're going in the right direction. We just don't know exactly what direction we're going right now. Well, you never know what direction things are going, you know, because none, none of us are psychic. But um, I I just look at the the fact that music is doing better than ever. I mean, you know, touring, touring in the pandemic aside, uh, music is doing better than it's done in ages. It recovered from it recovered from that huge dip in the industry. Instrument sales are through the roof. Music education like URM or whatever, we're doing great. Like people want to know how to make music. People are getting more and more creative. Genres are kind of disappearing. I mean, this is all really really good stuff and I think that the producers of tomorrow are going to need to they're going to need to have skills beyond just mastering one genre with the exception of like say like you know 
some guy wants to be the best death metal producer in the world and manages to become the best death metal producer in the world and all of the best death metal bands go to that person, cool. But there's only one of those people, right? Or two or three or four or five, maybe, right? There's not room for a thousand of them. There's room for five, 10, if I'm being super generous. (laughs) I think that the, the future path for successful producers as an industry is to be able to handle multiple genres and know how to blend them. That's the future, in my opinion. And I mean, you know, like technically... Uh, things are getting so easy. You know, it's like, I remember 15 years ago, 20 years ago, for me, it was like getting a okay mix was complicated. And I needed, <laughs> yes, I needed, you know, I needed a, a lot of skills. And I remember listening back and forth, you know, like, why, why is my stereo not like this, my correlation, like, you know, like all this kind of stuff. And now you have tools that help you so quick with, you know, Isotop, like all, all these plugins companies, like, you don't even have to know what you're doing, you know, if like, if someone tells you, like, yeah, make sure like this thing stays at one and you're good, you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like, I, I do think that like the creative side of producers is, you know, that's, that's why I ended up being like a songwriter, composer type producer. Because it's more exciting for me to get involved in the track and write the write the track than than actually getting it to sound great. You know, to me, like the creative side won't be replaced. You know, like back in the days, I worked for a company called Mad Waves, and then New Wave Labs in UK were doing generative music. So we were trying to like replace, like, you know, to get music to be done by itself. Like computer generated music? Yes. And so like we did like, you know, I don't know if you remember those Sony Ericsson's that had like, you know, you could create your own ringtone on it. That's yes. how we started to the point where we actually like, you know, sold the technology and um, with Google, like, I, you know, that's how I ended up working for Google. My love for California started from there, but it sucked, man. <laughs> <laughs> the music sucked. Like, you know, it's like even with so many talents in the room trying to put together these algorithms like I was missing something it was missing like imperfection you know and emotion uh, and emotion <laughs> yeah. yeah and and you know I, I do think that like that's that's the part I really love is like working on the emotional side of of a track and uh, and the te- technical side um, it's it's whatever to me you know like like there are so many records that I love that don't sound good well you know the technical side though is important, but the problem is when people prioritize it over the creative and emotional side. However, you know, there is a certain personality type who are more like human computers and they are just really good at technical kind of stuff and that's what they love. And I think that there's yeah, room yeah. for those kinds of people too. They make great editors, great engineers. I mean, dude, I need them for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like we need those people. And uh, and the ones that I know who are like that, they love it, which is, you know, it's like I remember from the touring days, there are, you know, guitar techs. And uh, the, the guitar techs that I worked with loved being guitar techs and they loved doing guitar luthier stuff when they were home. Like they love it. It was their passion, man. I never want to even think about building a fucking guitar or anything like that. (laughs) Like I I don't understand why someone would want to do that instead of be the player, but Hey, but that's fine. Like I'm really, really glad that there are people like that. Um, and that's how I feel about the technically minded engineers. Like 
they are necessary. But what I do agree with you on completely is that the barrier between having an idea and then having it sound good coming out of your speakers is far reduced. Far, far reduced. Yeah. Just think about where amp sims are now. Ten years ago, you could dial an amp sim and get a good tone, but it was hard as fuck. It took a ton of work. Nowadays, you just plug into some of them and they sound great. And the technology has come so far that, like I said, the time from having an idea until the idea coming through your speaker sounding good has been far reduced. Definitely. I, you know, and I'm not really technical with guitars. Like, <laughs> like I love my XFX because in five seconds I can be like, yo, homie, like I know you have that diesel VH4. Can you, uh, can you send me your, your SIM and, uh, and uh, I'll match it real quick. You know, like this is, this is pretty amazing for that. Definitely. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Man, I want to talk a little bit more about the generative music stuff you did, if you don't mind. Because uh, I've, I've never actually met anyone who worked in that world before. So what do you want to know? <laughs> I don't think that until machines figure out how to feel emotions <laughs> and have ideas of their own and feel those ideas that a machine will ever be able to replace human inspiration. I think that it could get super complicated and, uh, and mimic it and mimic all the technical aspects of music. Like, you know, if it keeps going, uh, the technology could definitely get it to where, you know, it can mimic chord progressions and melodies, but it will never be able to have that extra spark that that mood that a human has 
Yeah, that that's that was our problem. You know, you're like, all right, cool, like reggae music, most of it is minor, or you know, like we would start with like writing algorithms like this, and when we would do like sad music, you always want to bring some type of hope in it, and like and for that, it's like finding the right spot to like get your melody to modulate a little bit like it's like it's really like how you feel about it that makes you write it and the computer for sure we could not put that in algorithms that that was such a big issue the really positive thing about it though is that i at an early age i was able to get paid to actually study other music genres and i think that's why i always want you know i was so in, like i love metal that that was my genre in my heart you know but I was like, damn, like, it's so interesting. Like, you know, like, I would love to be able to write reggae or, or dub or, or Garage UK or, you know, UK Garage, sorry. And um, that's where my love started, you know, for, like, bending genres and doing crossover stuff. And the technology, I mean, I'll, I'll send you, I don't know, maybe you saw it. Like, the before I joined that company, they had put together some type of Game Boy. It looked like a Game Boy. It was called the Mad Player. Not familiar. So it was pretty interesting. Like and and back in these days, like I was like 16, 17, was end of the, the 90s. The limitation, the memory limitation, the RAM was crazy. So writing a piano and getting him to be in such a small, you know, device without a smart, you know, like a, a SD card or stuff like this, that was pretty insane. Um and the way it was working is like, you know, you could like it looked like a freeway and you had like your four tracks and you had drums, riff, bass and lead. And then you would go in each uh, lane and you could change that and randomly would give you something new. And, you know, and stay in the key or stay, you know, in the in the style you picked. Then you could like, what was cool is that you could also export the MIDI of this. So then you could like from there make actual music out of it, original music out of it. But uh, yeah, I mean, drums, super easy to program and make it feel real. Actually, like, taste right, you know? Bass was kind of okay, too. And as soon as we were getting into melody territory, it, it would become, like, I mean, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it would be pretty, you know, like a 4 a.m. session, you're... you're too turned up to, <laughs> to understand that what you're doing is terrible. Yeah, that's where we were. Yeah, what was also really interesting for me is that I was art director for it. So, you know, like I was the guy that would tell the musician what was cool or not, making sure the technical team was being respected. What does that mean, being respected? You know, like like there would be technical limitations regarding the size of a piano, the size of a bass, the size of, you know, like the actual instrument. So I would make sure that the musicians that were, you know, uh, putting together uh, ideas for the programmation of algorithm would understand that, you know, they could not do a legato on the bass or they, they could not could, could not do staccato or certain strings, like, you know, things like this. And uh, that's kind of like how my love for synth started, you know, because I was like, damn, man, like you can really, really go deep in like creating something that's totally unique, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's not that, I mean, I don't want to sound, <laughs> I don't want to sound too French about this, but like you know, like a Telecaster is always going to sound like a Telecaster. Yes. Like of course, like another Telecaster is going to be different than yours, but you know, and and with synths, I was like, damn, like the possibilities are infinite, you know. 
that's the kind of stuff I would do. Or I would make sure that, you know, the writing would be simple enough for the algorithms to actually do something tasty. It's really hard for me. Like, I know it sounds like I'm, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I'm telling you the earth is flat, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> trying to prove that the earth is flat right now. <laughs> it's not flat. No, it's not, dude. How crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah, generative music was, was a saying for sure, for sure. That's how I ended up in California a lot because I ended up doing like all the sound design for the Google Fun 1. Like doing all this, I don't know if you remember, like Google, when they came up with the first Google phone, yep. they were the first company to have like ringtones that were more than 30 seconds or like more than 25 seconds. I don't, I don't remember exactly the technical aspect of it, but I remember like writing long ringtones um, and, uh, and uh, also like, you know, we designed all the scenes for the phone uh, because like the, the, the memory back in the days was not as easy as now like you know like there was not as much memory in the phone so yeah that's you know it's interesting to see that actually generative music got me to do music content that actually got me in the place I wanted to be for my rock stuff that was California <laughs> you know like that's that's pretty much uh, how I ended up here there you know um, well that, that just goes to show that you never know what's going to lead to what, and you should do the best job possible with the opportunities in front of you. I know one of the biggest mistakes that I see URM students make is not taking their opportunities seriously because it's not what they eventually want to be doing. Yeah, My experience, at least, with any opportunities that I've had is that you don't know when they're going to show up. You don't know who they're going to come from. And you don't know how what you're doing now is going to lead to what you're doing five years from now. So take it seriously, always, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, dude, like when I moved to L.A., I wanted to be a, a you know, like a, what we call the producer, like someone like Mudrock, you know, like record guitars, record a band, mix it, engineer. Like that was kind of like the dream, you know. And then my opportunity was like, hey, dude, you write good songs, <laughs> you know, and, and I ended up like, you know, like pushing this, like, you know, I didn't fight it. I was not like, oh, that's not what I want to do. I went with it and I actually made a career out of it, you know, in America. And, and uh, yeah, like, like I see a lot of like, you know, like when you do a electronic song, like EDM music, you have a lot of opportunities that come up with one song. You can have like remixes, it depends on the scene you go in, like, you know, and a lot of artists, they, they get turned down because they are like, oh damn, this is not exactly what I wanted, so I'm not going to go with it. And, and it's like, yeah, but like, is it something that can bring you to the, a little closer to your goal? And jump into it. It's fine. Because it's either this or you have nothing, you know? How do you even know that that goal that you have now is going to be your goal in a few years? Dude, my only goal is this. I want to wake up every day, get in the studio, have fun with people, write cool music. And this makes me happy, you know, and be able to, you know, provide for my family. And this goal every day, I think I... I I, you know, achieve it. Then my dreams, <laughs> you know, like these are pretty defined, but they are, you know, I know they change, you know, like it's like when you wake up in the morning, the dream you had, like you probably have a not 100% like accuracy on what was really your dream in the first place when you were sleeping, you know. So I'm, I'm really cool with like going with the flow. I think it's key with this industry, you know, you have to be able to adapt very, very quick, whatever music you do. And uh, and I think like this is this is how I've been able to survive pretty well in it. But 
that's why I tell kids a lot too, like that come to the studio, you know. Um, I totally agree with you. They need to be open to new opportunities. Yeah, understanding that you never know where it's going to lead. I mean, it's a very big, uh, it's a very big jump to think of making ringtones to doing what you ended up doing. It's quite a jump. Yeah, yeah, it was a jump. I mean, the thing is that I was already in rock bands and, you know, like metal bands in Europe, dude, I was making no money. <laughs> you know, I was not making enough. And, uh, and I was just like, damn, I just want to make sure that every day I can, you know, make a living doing music because whatever music it is, it's it's better than any other job. You know that was that was where I was, and slowly it helped me get to where I wanted. And and now I do exactly what I want every day, and new opportunities come up. But yeah, you gotta take you gotta take the opportunity when when it shows up, and not be scared. And you know what what's the worst that can happen? You know, like you miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take. You know that's for sure. I go with that. I'm not afraid to fail either. You know, we have a pretty interesting song dropping with Luke next Friday. We shall see. <laughs> We shall see. People might not like it. It's okay. You know, people might be stoked about it. I don't know. But I just know that like trying new things and taking a risk and trying to be unique is key to uh, move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that trying to please the audience is a, is a bad idea because it's impossible to please everybody. It's just impossible. And it's impossible to predict how people are going to react. So if you're trying to please them, you're already losing. I mean, there's nothing worse than trying to please the audience and it doesn't work. I know. <laughs> you know, like this is like, and, and, and most music doesn't work out, man. You know, like this is what I tell people. It's like, I make a hundred songs a year. There's 10 that like, you know, or 15 that ends up like making some numbers. And out of these 15, there is one that like, you know, actually smash, you know. And uh, if you do it for like that one song, you're going to be really sad, you know, or your 10 songs, whatever is your level of, you know, production, you know, it's like, so I make sure that every day I do something that makes me happy because, <laughs> and make the artist happy or, you know, because like you never know where it's going to go. So, so um, uh, yeah, if you try to please everyone and it doesn't work out, like this is the worst feeling. I've made that mistake. Did you? Did you do that? <laughs> at some point I never like changed the sound of my own music to try to be more popular or anything um I mean <laughs> I wouldn't have chosen extreme metal if that was my uh I mean I definitely <laughs> yeah. wanted my band to get as big as we could get within yeah. within what we did but uh we never took that jump and maybe to our own detriment who knows but the reason I'm saying it is because I've seen you know, a lot of artists that I've either produced or assisted on productions with and, you know, been around a lot of artists who do think that way and who have had those thoughts. And um, I've seen what happens when they fuck it up. Yeah, I mean, dude, I have a perfect example for you. Look, like a dude like Ronnie Radke, right? Like he's extremely controversial and, you know, this guy loves fashion, new trends. Like, he really loves this. So it's part of him. Like, you know, like being a high beast of whatever is going on in music has been his thing. So if you love it, it's okay to try to be part of, like, whatever is popular. Absolutely, because if that's who you are. It's the same... 
Yeah, if this is who you are, it's like with you, like you are like them, and like I want my band to be the most extreme metal band of all times. Like this is the same way, you know. What sucks is when you try <laughs> to be someone else. That's this is where this is where everything falls apart. You know, I was having this conversation with Devin Townsend on the podcast about a year ago. We were talking about Chad Kroger and Nickelback, actually, and uh, you know he knows him. What we were saying was that people like that the Chad Kroger's of the world, that is who they are. That They are making the music that is them. That's why it's so successful. Like it or not, that's what their natural output is. And when you try to do stuff like that and it's not your natural output, the audience can tell. They can just tell. They're like drug dogs or something. They can just smell it. Yeah, that's why there are so many like rock acts that have been tanking, you know, heavy rock acts that, you know... Um they were not doing that for the right reason, you know. It, it goes back to what I was telling you in the first, you know, earlier in the podcast. Like, like when I was in a metal band, I was really angry. I was mad at the world. I was broke. Like there is, there was all these reasons for me to be on stage screaming in a mic, you know. And my band didn't do a lot. Like we got a small deal in Germany and all this, but like. Every time I think about it, I'm like, damn, man, like that was real. And one day I started making money with music. I started being a happier man, uh, you know, and I was like, damn, like I have no reasons to be that, to sing these lyrics anymore. And I had to go with where my life was going because I felt I was not authentic anymore. And I think that's, that's, that's the, that's the key is that authenticity. It's, it's like, if you're really the mirror of, of your life, I don't, I don't know how to say that in English properly, but I know, <laughs> you, you know where I'm going, you know, yes. like that authenticity is key for sure. So just out of curiosity, um, I'm sorry to keep going back to this. I'm just really curious when making music for a giant corporation or for a game or, you know, anything like that, that's not like a band, not an artist. It's a, it's a product. It's a product and you have to work with corporate people who have... Items. Yeah. It's itemized. I, yeah. <laughs> how, how different is that to you? Like, how is the process different than when you work with, uh, with you know, like a Ronnie Radke or something? Well, I have, I have to be honest with you, it's way easier. It's way easier because you get a list of exactly what needs to be done, you know? So it's like on the production side, like you can't really fuck up you know it was way easier the negative side is there is no real sense of accomplishment of doing something new or edgy or unique you know so it's also a little boring uh, <laughs> because like you know like it, it feels so easy uh, when you get in the in a room with a band or with a writer or singer you don't really know or you know there is like that that good anxiety of like not knowing where the day is going to bring you you know so that's basically you know and you might not do anything that day like that's that song you try to put together might never work and it can be like four five days like this of like blank and being like damn like this is this is not what we want this is not good this is like not right uh while doing the same shit again you know like all this type of stuff working for big corporations like that like the sense of satisfaction is quick <laughs> you know because you're like all right cool like i've been asked to do this two hours after it's done uh when you write for an artist you know it can be great in 30 minutes you can have something amazing done but you can also spend five days with that feeling of like damn man like we suck like <laughs> we don't <laughs> we don't have anything right now so that's like to me that's the two first things that come to my mind that are polar opposite from these two worlds for sure it sounds like 
there's probably certain personality types who would love that. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's probably a certain type of person who would love just to get a list of what has to be done and just do it the end. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm that guy when I receive like, you know, those mix notes, <laughs> I'm like, fuck, <laughs> like, I hate this. Like what I love is like, you know, the raw creativity of music. And that's why I didn't push it because as you can imagine, like, you know, like the first Google phone, it went pretty well. And, uh, and you know, like the, the company was really happy with our work and, and, you know, I had the opportunity to actually join Google and get like this kind of type of like career where you know exactly how you're going to make, how much money you're going to make every month, you know, but that was not exciting for me. That was not, you know, I remember being there talking to one of the, the main guys there, you know, they were showing me around me like, you know, you could have this and you could do this and you could do that. And I was like, man, I don't think you understand what it is to be in a shitty studio <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with a few people, some guitars and like creating something that did not exist. And like, you know, have that feeling in the room of like, damn, man, like we're going to conquer the world with this track, you know? Yeah, that was not for me. It's too cold for me. I love mistakes and, and imperfections and like, you know, where the creative direction in the room is just the room itself. And, uh, and you know, for this kind of company, you know exactly where it's going to go. Everything is so calculated. There is so much, you know, at stake. Well, I mean, in the small studio, you're thinking about taking over the world with this track. But at Google, they already took over the world. So that's why I realized that I was like, damn, like financial side of things is not my main concern, you know, because the money there was extremely different as like, you know, like the type of money you can make, like engineering or producing rock tracks, even if you can be extremely successful and make good money, like it's, it's like, it's, it's another world, but it's not that exciting when you, you know, I think it's like, it's the metal spirit or the punk spirit, you know, spirit. It's like, I don't want to be part of the people that impose to the other people what the way they should think or the shit they should listen to. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm against this. Why am I here? <laughs> you know? So that was uh, that was that was uh, you know an identity crisis for me. And uh, and back at that time, like I can tell you that my family was not understanding what was going on. They were like, "What? <laughs> you know, like you have this type of opportunity and you're not going with that." And I was like, "No, I want to make rock music, dude." <laughs> you know, the thing is that on the outside. Someone may not understand that, but I think that if you really know yourself, which I think is really, really important in this industry is uh, know yourself and you know that a situation like that is going to rot your soul basically and you're going to hate your job. I don't think that there's an amount of money that makes that worth it. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Don't get me wrong. Like this is exciting too, to work for this guy. Like what I learned working with them for them help me structure the way I, you know, take care of projects. Like, you know, like when I have to do a, a beat pack now, uh, a sound pack, like I, I learn from these days, like I'm way more efficient. Like there's a lot of good things to get. But to me, like for any musician or aspiring producer, like it's like, cool, do it for a couple of years. It's going to help you. But if you don't feel like you need someone every day to tell you what you need to do, don't stay there, <laughs> you know? So just out of curiosity, because you had that experience in such a serious environment, does it ever frustrate you how unprofessional and uh, lax the music industry is? No. The only thing with the music industry that's really hard for me is, you know, like song splits. To be, you know, fully honest with you, it's like you write songs with people and then there is that business discussion after. And uh, it's really hard for me like to be connected emotionally to a track and then just see it as just a piece 
of uh, you know of business. <laughs> That's where yeah, unprofessional people can can get your day to go really wrong. <laughs> can we talk a little bit about negotiating splits? Uh, this is something that uh, that actually a lot of our listeners are curious about. You just said it's something that you discuss after the fact. I mean, it depends. Like certain sessions, like, you know, like there is an ANR being like, hey, we're doing like this type of writing, this kind of placement. This is what people would get in the room and cool, easy. And then sometimes you're just like, you know, like this type of situation, you're just recording a song for a band and you're kind of like doing like some post-production type stuff. And then you end up giving that one idea. You can't help it. You're like, hey, check this out. Like, you know, on the course, maybe we could go there. And then everyone loves it. And then you end up having the course, you know. Especially with an upcoming band or project, it can be a little difficult to dis- discuss afterwards. You know, like that was not planned. And it's like, yo, um, you know, I, I actually like have the song is kind of me now. This is where things get a little complicated sometimes, especially with upcoming projects. I have a manager, I have a uh, you know, entertainment lawyer. They keep things like together for me. But like when you work with this kind of upcoming uh, artists, like they are not there yet. And so it's, it's, this is, this is a little tricky sometimes for sure. So what I try to do, what I, what I try to do is just like, you know, like I'm lucky enough, like my publisher, I, I signed with Lionel Conway and Brett Gervitz like a, a few years back. The assistant of Conway became my manager. So this guy took care of song splits for years before managing artists, you know? So it's pretty simple. Like I really try after every session to write down exactly what I've done. So then he has this kind of information and then we present it to the artist being like, hey, this is, you know, like this percentage of the song has been written by Charlie, this percentage of the song has been, you know, and and try to get them to really understand where it comes from instead of just throwing a number and and hurting (laughs) people's ego, you know. I always try to be as transparent as possible with the artists I work with. Back in the days, I would make the mistake of uh, just waiting <laughs> for a few days to open the conversation. And now I know that, like, you know, once it's done in the studio, I get this conversation on directly. You know, like, hey, guys, <laughs> that's like, I think it's the experience, but now it's more like, okay, I, I wrote that chorus. So are we uh, thinking about publishing? Like, how do you see this? And like, face to face in in the energy of the, the, the song and the, and the session, um, it's a little easier. Um, my advice, like for younger musicians, is to really like talk about it as soon as possible, and uh, and and be okay with like not knowing what's going on and asking for a lot of advice around you with like people that are already uh, doing it type stuff. But yeah, that's pretty much how I approach it. Like I try to be really transparent, and and I'm okay. Also, like sometimes I feel like the idea came from me, and and <laughs> and maybe it wasn't, you know. So like I also question myself. I make sure that I'm not like looking like that guy that is trying to like steal from uh, the intellectual property from someone else. You know, that's a really bad feeling when people do that to you. So I don't I don't want to be that guy. You know, I I think that um, a lot of people coming up in the industry have a hard time with things like knowing how to charge or they're afraid of, I don't want to say confrontation, but yeah, they're afraid of confrontation and afraid of being assertive about things. And so I think that that's why they will wait to talk about it until it's way too late. I've known people waiting a lot more than a few days. Like they'll wait a month or two until the, and, and then everyone forgot what even happened. Bad idea. Yeah, very bad idea. And, you know, like the worst is when the song is actually dropping and you never had the talk. 
you know. And uh, and then you receive that one email from the label being like, hey, um, did you write something on this? <laughs> you know. And um, so if you're lucky, <laughs> if you're lucky. Yeah, I was gonna say, wow, you actually got that email. <laughs> I think it's okay, you know. Like I'm. I think like I've never really had an issue being like, hey, this is what I think I deserve. Do you want to discuss it? And I think maybe that comes also from the fact that it has I have a, a corporate experience with people like Google or or Ubisoft or you know like I did all this music content like that company I was working for. We did a bunch of music content for a lot of corporations. I got trained thanks to this, but it's true. Like when you are a true artist, like it's really really far from like. Is it okay to do this? Like it feels like I'm talking about money, but it's like it's just a piece of art. Like so, yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty tricky. It's pretty tricky. What what's your what's your approach on this? Okay, so you know, in URM, it's very very simple, right? Uh, we have a price for the service and our products. The end. But when I was producing, it was hard because I didn't want to feel like I was ripping people off. Like I had some insecurities about charging too much. And then eventually once I started working with label bands, then we're just dealing with budgets. And so there wasn't, I didn't feel like I had the, the clout to be like, that's not enough. So in reality, for me, there wasn't a ton of that, but I had to learn how to get comfortable just asking for money. And the way that I got comfortable with it is just by doing it, <laughs> which is how I feel about everything. Like I talked about this on a podcast a few years ago that basically my philosophy towards things you're afraid of in life is fuck it, just do it. You know, whether <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, yeah. talking to the girl or going for the record deal or moving to LA, if that's what you want to do or whatever, you know, me quitting production to start URM, these types of things that are important, but are scary. Fuck it. Just do it. So first of all, I think the anticipation is worse than the actual act with most things. So, um, so the amount of time that you're going to spend scared and stressed out about doing something is going to be worse than actually doing it. In most cases, yeah, you worry about asking for money and worry about how are they going to react and how's this going to go and is it too much, too little? Just fucking say it and then they'll respond and then you're going to know how they're going to react how, because they reacted and uh, you can go from there. Accordingly, yeah. I mean, dude, my first, like, especially when I moved to LA and I started, like, you know, recording, producing people there, like, I was putting myself, like, as you said earlier, like, I didn't really know who I was, especially in a different country. Like, everything was so different. I remember, like, you know, calling my friends and being like, dude, like, you know, I just spent three days on this song. Ugh, I need to ask this guy, but, like, you know, he's pretty big. Like, how, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, if I lose the gig, like, uh, you know, like, there's, you know, like, you end up in, like, this crazy anxiety. Yeah, rabbit hole. And actually, the only thing I had to do was just like, all right, cool. I call that guy. Like, hey, so what's up with that? Okay, cool. Oh, you want this? Oh, I want that. Okay, compromise done. It's behind us. It's all good. And uh, yeah, it's it's like, I feel like a lot of careers don't take off because of that fear of, you know, like actually being professional about it. And you know, what's funny is people are expecting you to ask for something, right? And if they're not, those aren't the type of people you want to be working with anyways. But anyone who hires you to work on a track if they're an actual artist who's going for an actual career. Yeah, there's no issue. I had no issues with 
any professional artist I worked with, I had zero issue. Of course, there would be an issue with a split here and there. Yeah, you know, there's there are discussions, but like to get paid, it's normal. It's like they understand. Like they get on stage, they get paid. So why would the producer not get paid or the engineer? You know. But yeah, like it's it's that's why I was telling you like it's hard when it's with an upcoming artist, really upcoming. Like meaning like no record deals yet, and like did like. 15 shows and uh, and pay-to-play type of shows, you know. Discussions are harder with this kind of artist, for sure. And I also know that, like, if I don't take the risk to work with this type of artist, I'm going to miss out on, like, new energies and new uniqueness, you know. So it's uh, finding the balance. What fight to pick and what fight not to pick, you know. Well, so, for instance, a fight that I decided not to pick on the advice of my then-manager. When producing and mixing small metal records, fuck getting points. Because... Who cares? So this is like, am I going to really sweat them for three points on an album that's a $10,000 budget that's going to barely recoup for three points that I'll never see anyways? Why even go there? Why sweat them for it? Why get adversarial about something that just doesn't matter. I decided that's not a fight that's worth fighting. I mean, you know, if if, uh, if this was a different universe and I was producing Slipknot, then that's a different story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I never really asked for points. I've always been like into like, yeah, pay me for my time and make sure that if I write the song, like, you know, it's more of the principle of being respected for the intellectual property you're bringing to the table. You know, it's like at the end of the day, especially when you are like, I would say ghostwriter, it's like this is all you have at the end of the day. It's your credit and this little cut of publishing you're getting. So it's it's important, I think, that like you fight for this if, you, if you're starting to be a, a songwriter. Like it's really important because... You can uh, you can you can lose a little bit of your soul, like not you know fighting. It's it's good to stand up for yourself. It's really good too, you know. Uh, but for the points as a producer, I totally agree with you. Any metal record, <laughs> like I would be like, cool, yeah, that's fine, you know. Like five points of what? Like you guys need to do like, you know, uh, I don't know how many sales back in the days or like you know or now it's like to recoup like a a twenty thousand dollar budget, you need to do at least five million plays. Uh, uh, and then you know whoever owns the masters, like it takes forever. It's like yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's different. It's different. Yeah, it's just not a battle that's that's worth fighting. But y- you just brought up something interesting with ghostwriting. So with ghostwriting, correct me if I'm wrong because I don't know much about it. Like you're not actually credited, right? That's the definition of ghostwriting. Yeah. yeah. That said, how do you develop a reputation then for the great work that you've done within the ars and within the artist like group uh, you know creative group you're part of so the word of mouth yeah i have a bunch of kids coming to the studio and and they're like oh you just you don't have that many followers you know like <laughs> and uh but you have all these plays for these songs and it's just like you know like like to talk about the world of mouth not just the ghostwriting like it's like it's key it's key like the relationship you build and like the respect you get from artists they're gonna they're gonna, you know, spread the love. So, yeah, to go back to ghostwriting, yeah, you're not credited, but you're not credited on the Spotify list, <laughs> but uh, but you still have your cut <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> you know, you still have uh, you still have uh, people can still find stuff on on BMI and ASCAP and things like this. It's more about like you kind of sign this kind of paper that says that you can't really talk about the song as your song. But luckily, I didn't have to do that a lot. <laughs> Not in the rock world. Not in the rock world. Like in the rock world, like people are cool. 
for that. But yeah, in the pop world, things can be really different. I guess if you do great work, the people who matter find out. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's interesting. Like, since I've been in Miami, I worked with a lot of producers that I thought were producers. And actually, they are like more of executive producers. They get like, you know, writing credits or they get production credits for just putting people in the room together, like getting the right beat maker. Rick Rubin style. Exactly. But they market themselves as actual music producers. So it's uh, at the beginning, like when I showed up here, I was like, oh, that this is not too much of an LA thing. Like in LA, they say they are executive producers, <laughs> you know. Uh, here, it's like, oh, you're a music producer? I'm like, yeah, show me how, oh, you don't write music? Wait, <laughs> you know, uh, like DJ Khaled type stuff, you know. It's interesting, like the titles, you know, like for a while, I, I was really looking into like, you know, how how do people perceive me? What, who am I in this in this industry? And I started not giving a fuck and everything went great, <laughs> you know. Do you think that part of that is because coming from the corporate world, titles do matter? Yeah, because in the corporate world, that's all you have. And I have people in my family in, in corporate America and like, you know, like it's like if they lose their job, it's like they lose themselves. In our world, freelance and more like, you know, independent, like you lose one gig, you'll find another one and you'll still be, you'll still do what you do every day. Yeah, I do think maybe, yeah, maybe that was the reason why I was trying to figure out how to be perceived. What do you consider yourself now? Do you consider yourself a songwriter that produces or a producer that songwrites? Oh, right now I'm like definitely a beat maker, man. <laughs> like for the for the past six months, this is what I've been doing. I've been writing tons of beats and tracks, and I would consider myself right now as a vocal producer. This is what I do mostly. It's like I I produce vocals. I think I got pretty good at like making top lines way more efficient, and really worked on my craft and like how to technically get vocals to sound like a certain way. And this is yeah, this is pretty much. My gig right now is mainly this, you know, like beside like I have a studio in LA, I have a studio in Miami, but like what I do is I produce vocals. Like I I think I plugged in a guitar like three times, like <laughs> personally in the past, in the past three months, you know. So yeah, vocal producer. I don't know if it's a thing. Is it a thing? <laughs> you know, obviously in rock, that's not like a title, but <laughs> I I know I know people in other genres that that's what they do. Yeah. I mean, it's the most important thing, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's why I spend so much time working with Ronnie, because, like, he's an unbelievable singer, extremely creative, and, like, it's so fun. Like, it really made me fall in love with, like, producing vocals. I think that, like, working on, like, dancehall or trap, traditional, you know, trap, all I have to do is produce vocals, and this is one of the favorite things I like to do. So the mix part, I don't really like mixing, especially if I put the track together and then I produce the vocals. Man, like I suck. <laughs> it's like I, I I don't know. Like I'm like, oh my god, if I touch this, like it's it's gonna change the entire vibe. I don't know, you know. Like so, I love to get my stuff mixed by uh, someone else. But yeah, producing vocals is is so much fun. I want to talk about the BMW Kenny record real quick. Twelve song album. It's less than 10 minutes in runtime. Since we're talking about, you know, music of the future a lot, do you see that as uh, as something that's the direction things are headed? Like almost like grindcore length. I mean, dude, like when that guy showed up at the studio, I was like, what the heck? <laughs> you know? I mean, that's like a grind album. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> 
what he's trying to do is, you know, like his entire vision is I write a cool hook and then it's on TikTok and all the revenues come to me and I don't need anything else than just TikTok to get my stuff out. And to me, it's cool, but it's cool to a certain extent. It's like you're limiting yourself. Like to me, it's like corporate shit, you know? It's almost like a jingle. Yeah, it's like a jingle. And and the worst part about it is like when I heard that record, I was like, damn, like everything is amazing. <laughs> Meaning like there could be 12 great songs out of this. Why why do I just get a chorus, half a verse, and then the beat, you know? <laughs> like, you know, like my first thought was like, dude, like what about you do a long version of this and uh and then you do a TikTok version, you know, and 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 everyone is happy and uh but you know, I don't know, man. Like it's the attention span of kids now. Like, like I see them in the studio. Like when they are, you know, listening to tracks to try to get like inspired, they spend like 35, 40 seconds on the song. I'm not talking about rock people. I'm talking about like hip hop pop people, like 40 seconds, and then they go to another song. And this is like how people listen to music now. And so, kind of makes sense. He's just playing into that. Then the art part of it, I I don't know. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure, but like for sure, everything is sketchy. It might it might it might get a lot of plays, and you know, when people like your song and it's 40 seconds and they play it five times, like this is five times the money you would get uh, if your song is seven minutes. So to me, it's like maybe Spotify and all these guys should start looking into like also getting paid on like the length of the song. You know, Opeth would become the biggest band in the world. Man, the Yes album, the Green album. Yeah. <laughs> With songs being like 14 minutes, like yeah, you know. But what do you think? Like, I I do think that should be a thing too, you know. Like, I mean, the algorithm to detect actually if like the song is not just a copy and paste 25 times would be crazy. But uh, yeah, like I think it's the best way to actually for that guy to make tons of streams. I'm not entirely sure. Okay, so I could be wrong and it could have changed, but I believe that the YouTube algorithm does factor in the amount of time that you spent watching. And so, you know, if you spend, if you watch a one hour video for the full hour, that counts way more than if you watched three minutes out of a 10 minute video or something. Yeah. Yeah, for YouTube. Yeah, maybe for Spotify. I'm totally wrong and they're already changing this, but um, <laughs> could be a thing. It could be a thing. Is this something that you've seen with other artists? Like, so you're saying that you're seeing a lot of uh, younger people in pop and, and hip hop listening to 40 seconds of a song. Is this like, are 40 second long songs something that's becoming more normal? For you? I mean, right now, like I'm, I'm doing a lot of hip hop tracks under 150. Wow. Like already, yeah, yeah. It's like chorus, verse, it's not even a 16, it's an eight. Chorus, half a verse, chorus, half beat, done. It's a thing. <laughs> it's definitely a thing. I mean, like, you know, guys like Lil Pump, like they they uh, they did full records. Like, I don't know, like the, the Harvard dropout that he dropped like a, few, a couple of years ago. Like this record is like 29 minutes. There is like 17 songs, <laughs> something like that. Like, I don't know exactly, but like, like it's something like this. Like, you know, it's, it's a good way to like get streams. You know, I, I, I get it. If you're totally independent, you do something great of one minute and 40 seconds and like people listen to it three times to be satisfied with your track. Yeah, I get it. It's a smart commercial way to make money. <laughs> like there is not that much you can do even in rap, like in one minute, four seconds. Like the story is short, man. <laughs> the story is short. And it's 100 BPM. It's not It's not 190. It's not death metal, you know? Okay, so here's the thing that I'm wondering about. Okay, so you know that like 
payola was a big thing, right? And for people who don't know, because they're too young, that was uh, when labels would pay radio stations to, you know, put a song into rotation. I mean, you can't generate a hit. Like, you can't control what the audience is going to like, but that's how they definitely up the chances significantly for a song. Yeah, like they say, pay, pay for slots. Yeah, exactly. And so that is a way that they tried to increase the commercial potential of a track. And so how, in my opinion, you know, we're talking about adapting, right? So what I'm hearing is just that modern artists have adapted to this new landscape. If it's no longer a payola type landscape, it's now a streaming landscape. And so they have figured out how to make the best of it. And if it means 40 or a minute long songs, 40 second or a minute long, then they're adapting to that because Because that's what artists who want to have a career do, I think. I mean, especially in these times, I mean, man, like, there is no shows. Like, I mean, you know, if right now what you need to do to put bread in your plate is this, and that's all you know, you know, in your life is like to make tracks and make music, I'm not mad at them. I just hope that like when the renaissance happens and like, you know, the world opens up and we can do shows again, Uh, we hope people will be down for like a, a quick, you know, a four minute and 30 seconds type song standard. That would be cool, <laughs> you know. Um, but um, yeah, right now I feel like it's a it's a way to survive for for a lot of artists. Do you get any artists who still do like traditional length or longer songs? Is that even a thing? No, I, yeah, with Luke, we with Luke, I mean, with Luke, yeah, yeah, we do at least three minutes. You know, the thing is that he, he hits so many, <laughs> so many elements, and it's so busy that after three minutes, you're all kind of like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, like, I just hope he's listening to this and like, I'm fucking with him. But uh, <laughs> I doubt he's listening. Um, oh, he will, he will. I'll send it to him and be like, yo, I'm talking shit about you. Like, you should check this out, Luke. You better fucking listen. I mean, with Ronnie, like, I'm, I'm about to go to LA to like. You know, write with him uh, next week and all his tracks, like, you know, the few last songs I work on with him, like, they're all like 340, four minutes. Hip hop wise, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, Ayo and Teo last week, like, the songs are two minutes, man. The collab with Walshy Fire, you know, from Major Laser, the song is 145. Uh, <laughs> so uh, maybe it's a genre type stuff. Like, I'd, I don't see like rock metal bands like doing like the two minutes format yet. But I would not be surprised if it if it starts happening. I mean, grindcore did that for years. Yeah, but it's grindcore. You know, it's always been like I remember, like you know, listening to like really crazy hardcore when I was 15 years old, and the songs were one minute and 30 seconds. But that was more of a physical issue. Like the guys needed to stop at some <laughs> point. <laughs> you know, you need a break, man. <laughs> and because they didn't have a melodic, you know, breakdown where like everyone can chill for a second, like they had to stop it. Like that's how I always saw it. I was like, yeah, this is like, yeah, like, all right, <laughs> chill. But um, yeah, no, most, uh, most are, you know, like hip hop, trap, everything is, you know, max two minutes and 30 seconds right now. And then you have like extreme cases, like, like BMW Kenny, what that drops like songs, like 25 seconds, 30 seconds. Um, but yeah, it's like, you're, you're, I agree with you. It's a jingle. It's not a song anymore. And it's kind of a bummer because like when, <laughs> I mean, this guy writes like dope stuff. So you're like, 
oh. <laughs> like you know it feels like it feels like you you're going to the label and you're like okay so you know you have 10 minutes you are at Def Jam and you're like okay let me play you this 10 last songs and you're just playing the chorus because people have 10 minutes for you like this is how his record feels like it's like cool <laughs> like, you know like uh, where where did the verse go are the labels cool with it like uh because i know that in at least traditional record contracts there's a minimum time requirement on an album So are they cool with that? Everything I'm talking about right now, it's independent stuff. Oh, okay. But look, man, like, I mean, in that world, like, all these kids, they understand, like, they have, like, millions of, I mean, you know, Ayo and Teo, they were with BMG. Uh, I mean, they're still with BMG, but they started, like, dropping songs by themselves. Like, they understood. They're like, them. like, we have, like, 5 million followers on Instagram, 7 million on YouTube. Like, why, why would we give, you know, 80% to a major when we can actually make... 100 or 200k just dropping that track in two weeks you know um and uh and also most of these artists they built social media you know that's a discussion i have a lot with with this type of uh, uh artists like they never really had a push to get big on social medias they actually got big on social medias and made social medias be what they are you know so it's like for them they're like wait like why would i be giving a big cut of what i'm making to that label when i actually built my own following and i totally agree with them i remember in the 90s the movement to not have a label and to be independent was just starting and uh there was there were a few artists who pulled it off um like there was this uh female i think she was folk Man, I don't know because I never listened to her, but Ani DeFranco, who sold four million records independently in the '90s, which is fucking unbelievable. And then, uh, and then also the idea too was in order to get signed to a real deal, you almost had to already be big on your own. So I know that like bands like Hootie and the Blowfish or Dave Matthews Band, these massive, massive bands sold like hundreds of thousands of copies on their own, you know, at shows. Creed did the same thing. Disturbed did the same thing. So um, this idea that in order to get onto a huge label, you didn't need a label, started to become a thing. And then eventually the idea that you didn't need a label at all started to, I think, permeate. However, I think that at least up until recently, that idea was bullshit because the only artists who really, really could do it without a label were, you know, an exception here and there, like Ani DeFranco was a total exception, or artists who were already big and then decided to go independent, like Nine Inch Nails or Radiohead. Like, But local bands can't think that they're Nine Inch Nails or Radiohead. However, in the past few years, I think this has actually started to become very true, that you really can be independent and not need a label. And that's a beautiful thing about the time period we live in. Yeah, this is amazing. I mean, you know, I, I see a lot of projects, especially like, you know, like these DJs that are like producers that put tracks together. They come from private equity and and they are doing that with their friends. You know, like they, they know that they can get started with like 50K and they have five friends that want to help them. They directly have their LLC and like get things started. They keep their, you know, um, artistic direction the way they want. They uh they they can drop whenever they want, you know. It's like it's like there is no 
a proper cycle, a label cycle, and like album cycle, whatever you know, like they can. And this is cool. This is a good new era on that end for sure. Man, I think maybe metal bands and rock bands are going to need to figure out a way to adapt to this. I think Falling in Reverse, Ronnie is doing pretty well with that. Like this guy went like from dropping albums to just dropping singles, and his streams have never been that big. You know, like Popular Monster got gold. You know, he's getting like gold on singles, like rap artist. And I think it's because he understood is like, well, the attention span now, kids they they cannot like really listen to a full album. But if I do something crazy on one song, and really push that one song, like Drake do, does, like all these guys, it's it's. Uh, I think it's it, it kind of like started showing the way, like 2018 with that, or two, early 2019, like copying, like. I would say, or getting inspired of you know what what um, the the urban community is doing. So if everyone could start doing this, it would be cool. <laughs> it would be really cool. Like there would be more interactions. Like it, it would be more alive because especially right now there is no tours, so no single, no album because there is no tour. It's it's hurting even more like the rock community in my opinion. You know the other problem I think with rock and metal is that it was so focused on having two or three good songs and then whatever seven other songs that just were whatever for so long with some cool riffs yeah some cool riffs here and there that i think that for the most part the audience lost faith in it and uh and uh, like i think it's something that happened gradually but i just remember buying albums and being super disappointed many times many many times just this, you get it and it's like two awesome songs and then shit. And you just wasted a bunch of money. I always have that joke in the studio, like when the song is not that great, you know, when I'm working on a single, I say, oh yeah, this would be a great song seven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like me, meaning like, yeah, after your singles, you know, like, you know, when the album starts being boring, yeah, that's pretty boring. Let's put it in there. <laughs> but yeah. Well, yeah, my point being that if metal bands and rock bands started to focus on making the best songs they possibly can only. Just put your energy into really making the best songs possible. Maybe there's some hope. Because really, at the end of the day, it all comes down to great songs. Definitely. So wh why worry about the seven bullshit songs? Exactly. One song at a time, one great piece, that's, that's better. That's for sure. I mean, I agree with you. Also, do you think that the rock world is ready let's say normal times, right? Not in COVID mode, but is ready to like put tours together out of like two singles? No. <laughs> it's like, it, it works for legacy artists. Like it works for Ronnie because he already has like 50 songs out, but like for new artists, like does that work? Because, uh, you know, it's like, it's not the same. Like for rappers, it, it's easy. They can have just one song. Then they get all this, you know, like they pop up in the club and they do one song in the club. And they are paid for that and it was great and everybody knows they were there for the night and, you know, they are part of the show and they do one or two songs. They can make a career out of this. They can make a good living out of this. But, like, for rock artists, like, what's the what's the solution, you know? What's the what's the compromise to actually deliver, like, unbelievable songs and uh, maybe just spend more time? Uh, but right now, <laughs> the fight for content quick, like, consistent content is also there. So I, I do have an answer to what you're saying. Rock and metal bands tour way too much. Like, you shouldn't be hitting the same market five times in a year. And I think that that's hurt a lot. It's no longer special when you can go see the same band four or five times a year or twice a year. So 
I think that if bands focused on what we're talking about and building themselves up over time online through releasing great songs, eventually they'll have enough out there to where they can do a tour and and can play a full set. But the difference will be that people will actually give a fuck that they're out there playing live. And I've seen that happen. Like I have friends who got big online first, then started touring and they have done great. I just kind of don't really totally believe that the way to make it as a, as a heavy band these days is to put out an album and then jump in the van for two years. I think that that's, that's an outdated concept. I think you put out music and more music and more music and you build that audience and then you jump in the van. And maybe if you built a, if you did it long enough, maybe you don't even need to do a van in the first place. Maybe you can just go straight to a tour bus. And I know that some people are going to get mad at me for saying that because they <laughs> were in a van for a long time. But, uh, you know, it's a changing world. Yeah. The van seeing is also great, you know, like <laughs> the memories in the van are amazing, you know. So it's, uh, it's uh, I, I do think like, you know, what's hard though is if you drop like two songs that get you big and then you want to actually change your sound and make your music evolve, like this is what I love about the concept of like, you know, like having a full lens because you can start the record like sounding like where you were. So your fans, you know, understand and like slowly implement new ideas and and finish your record in you know in a different uh, uh place artistically and uh and get people to you know uh be introduced to your new sound you know and uh that's harder with like just dropping singles i agree but you can use your social medias to actually show that to people too so there are solutions but um i miss big great albums man that's for sure <laughs> that's for sure well you know i feel like if a band has a big great album in in them then they should definitely do that yeah yeah, yeah uh, obviously like uh, i I'm, I'm not saying that bands should never do that or anything like that and i think that if they're capable like i don't think and I know that we're talking about up-and-comers, but I don't think a band like Opeth needs to be doing singles because their whole thing is big, expansive, long-form music. But I don't think that everybody has great albums in them. I think a lot of people have some great songs in them. So kind of comes back to knowing yourself. And I think that it's better if an artist, if an artist has great songs in them but not a great record in them, then there is a way to still develop a career. However, you know, again, like I said, I feel like if uh, if an artist does have the capability and the inspiration to do a full length that's actually great, that actually has no filler on it, well, cool, awesome, why not? Definitely. I, I would love to see a, a full length of Luke Holland. We have the tracks. <laughs> we have the tracks, man. But, um, you know, while trying to, like, collaborate with tons of like different singers but like still with the same like musical direction and you know like while dropping one single at a time right now but i think like it would make even more noise if like you know it was a full-length album dropped by a drummer i think this would be crazy this would be really cool right now so hopefully <laughs> hopefully we get this done and that's also an audience that likes that kind of stuff yeah definitely anyways Charlie, I think this is a good place to uh, to stop the episode. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it was a pleasure, too. Uh, I had a lot of fun. A lot of good insight. Yeah, man. I had a really good time. We should do this again sometime. Whenever. I would love to. All right, then. 
Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at AL Levy URM Audio at URM Academy and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.